begin by reading something to you. This is something I wrote several years ago now, and I didn't blow up the print, so I'll need my glasses for this part. Uh, near the place where I grew up, on the north side of California's Monterey Bay, there's a place nearly lost to history. Between the sands of Jetty Beach and a stretch of Highway 1, standing silently above a small inland waterway, weathered wooden pilings are all that remains of Hudson's Landing. Once a small but busy harbor, Hudson's Landing was a shipping gateway for grain and other produce growing in the rich soil of the Central Coast. But changes in the agriculture industry and shifting ocean sands conspired to close Hudson's Landing forever. Now all that remains are the wooden pilings. The buildings and the walkways are gone. A road passes by it, but none goes to it. The people who live nearby have no idea the place ever existed. The pilings rise above the calm waters like old gray ghosts, a monument to their prior importance. There is a certain romantic appeal to a place that once thrived and now lies in ruins. It is a mystery, a forgotten idea, the recollection of which compels me to wonder. Who were the people who once lived and worked there? What were their lives like? What were their stories? What meaning and purpose did those ruins once enjoy? It doesn't matter, of course, and you could be forgiven for recognizing that it doesn't matter. But what if it did? What if somehow you encountered the ruins of some former place and knew inexplicably they contained a wisdom and a magic beyond reckoning? What if the mysterious and forgotten idea contained therein was the very meaning of life? What if the rubble were not a pier but a bridge, a gateway to something perfect? What if those ruins were once the critical foundation of a clear purpose? These are foolish questions, I know. No place, no matter how grand, is all this, right? Yet I find myself mourning a place I've never visited and a perfection I have never known. I am aching for the person I am meant to be, a person who exists only in a place to which I've never been. It's not just foolish, it's a little bit mad. Still, I am hardly alone in my madness. All of humanity is caught up in the desire for paradise. Even those who adamantly reject its existence will spend their lives trying to gain it. We have been assured that money can't buy it, but we are certainly willing to try. And if not money, perhaps the advantages of power or the affirmation of fame will deliver. We've chased experience, pleasure, and adrenaline, hoping to find it. We've felt it at times in the love of others, but even that falters. We are mad about this perfection, and its elusive nature often leaves us feeling hopeless. We were created with a perfect purpose that is now lost to us. We are created to live, and yet somehow we often become a passive habitat for life. In the absence of true purpose, we've settled for existence. In the absence of meaning, we've settled for amusement, and yet we do not share the advantages of ambivalence. 
we care about this void more deeply than we would sometimes care to admit. We sense that there is or was an intent for our lives. The awareness of it is like a faint memory that leaves us unsettled and discontent. We can deny it. We can run from it. We can medicate against its nagging effect, but at the end of the day, we still long to know the truth. Existing will never be enough for us. We want to know why we're here. We want to know the whole story and what part we play in it. We want to rediscover our place. Now, I read that to you this morning as a way of introducing this initial idea that humanity is unique in its hunger for purpose. We're the only species that even worries about such things. Your dog doesn't care why it exists as long as you exist. Your cat doesn't even care if you exist. Only humanity has this need. And in fact, it's one of the arguments we sometimes make for the existence of God. Because why would we question meaning if there were no God? There is no evolutionary advantage to questioning whether or not there's a purpose for our existence. As a matter of fact, it sort of gets in the way of our survival. Why would we ask who we are and why we're here when there are no clear answers? And in the absence of clear answers, we take up all manner of purpose and cause. Might be a particular activity that we treat as if it had the ultimate value, winning that trophy or meeting that benchmark, having that bit of success is going to validate my existence and make it all worthwhile. Or it might be some cause that we take up, a particular battle, a fight against some perceived evil or the cause of our failure. Last week we began with the premise that the world is broken. It didn't take you long to agree with me in that premise. But here's the problem. In understanding what the unbroken world looks like, we're reverse engineering. We're starting with the ruins of something that was, the broken pieces, and our own broken, fallen understanding of things. And we're trying to reverse engineer perfection. What did it look like? How do we understand it? We're trying to reverse engineer morality, goodness. Jesus' kingdom message begins from the opposite perspective. He begins with what is whole. And in trying to explain to us what is whole, sort of inadvertently reveals to us just how broken it all really is. After describing to us the kingdom economy that we talked about last week, he says this, starting with verse 13 of Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What is it that Jesus is saying? Well, initially what he's saying is that the goodness of our creation is our purpose. This is why we're here. We're the salt of the earth. Now, we have to mention here the importance of salt because in our world, salt is easily gathered and refined. We buy it for pennies. It's really cheap. In the world in which Jesus first gives this message, the importance of salt cannot be understated. And it's not just about seasoning food. In the absence of refrigeration, salt becomes extremely important as a preservative. And so it is seasoning, it is preservative, and of course, the human body cannot live without sodium. We need salt for our survival. It's one of a, a handful of minerals that we simply must have. We don't give it much thought because in the American diet, we have so much salt, we never have to worry about whether or not we got enough. But when you live in the desert, salt is important for your very survival. When we use the phrase salt of the earth, culturally, we're often talking about common people, good hearty stock. And when we use it in church, we often think that it's a reference to the believers, the followers of Jesus. It means that when we're when we're following Jesus, we become the salt of the earth. But that is not the context of this passage. That is not what Jesus says either here or in the other uh, passages in the other Gospels that reflect this same sentiment. He says, you are the salt of the earth, regardless. Regardless of whether or not you're following me, regardless of where you are in your spiritual relationship with God, you are the salt of the earth. This is how you were created. This is your identity. This is all humanity. It is a metaphor for our created value. We are created to do a certain thing, to have a certain purpose. Specifically, we are created in the image of God. We're created to reflect the image of God. And because of that, we are inherently valuable. There is a goodness to that. There is a purposefulness to that. But if we lose that, if we lose that uniqueness, we lose our very purpose. Now, I should point out that theology nerds debate this point, and yes, there are theology nerds. We'll get into that another time. But theology nerds debate this point because salt doesn't actually get less salty. And so there's this question that arises. What is it that Jesus is saying? Salt doesn't go bad. You can have salt in your pantry forever, and it will still taste like salt. It doesn't lose that flavor because it's not a flavor. It is what the salt is. Salt is always salty. And so the speculation kind of goes like this. Their refining processes in that day were not as good as ours. And so you, your salt actually had a lot of other stuff in it. And if your salt got contaminated with moisture, then a lot of the salt could leach out and it would leave behind the other minerals and contaminants and then you would end up with something that was not quite salty enough to be a good preservative or flavoring, but it still has salt in it. So you wouldn't just throw it down to the yard because that would be salting the earth, which is a bad thing. So you throw it in the pathway where you don't want anything to grow. In other words, this 
damaged salt is the world's first roundup. Keeps the pathway clear. That's a good theory, and it works. It sort of suits suits uh, the, the illustration that Jesus gives. I'm kind of working from a different theory, and my theory is that Jesus specifically chooses things that are defined by what their qualities are. Salt and light do not lose their defining qualities. You can have an absence of salt, and you can have an absence of light. As a matter of fact, we understand darkness not to be an entity unto itself, but the absence of light. But salt and light will always be what they are. The element of salt will always be salty. That is its character. That is its nature. You can have an absence of light. You can remove light. You can cover light. But the light itself will always be lighty, I guess. These things are defined by their nature. They cannot be separated from their nature. They are always as they were created to be. If, in fact, salt could lose its saltiness, it would lose what it is. It would cease to have its meaning. It would cease to have its purpose. Understand this. The defining goodness of our creation is God's image upon us. That is our purpose. That is our identity. We can dilute it. We can cover it such that you might not recognize that it's there anymore. But it is inherent to who we are. This is the nature of human beings as salt and light. We are created in God's image. Now, the problem with claiming the image of God is as our identity is that our God is a righteous God. And this is the saltiness and the light that's sometimes missing. Our God is a righteous God. We're created in his image, and yet we have lost sight of that righteousness. Like paradise, righteousness is an idea for us that is kind of forgotten. And when we try to understand what righteousness is, we're really kind of reverse engineering it. We're starting with what we know, which is an unrighteous and fallen world, and trying to imagine what the righteous world looks like. Trying to imagine what the righteous individual looks like. Because we have no experience of such things. So Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is an incredibly revolutionary message. This is the part of the message, uh, maybe in a way, even more than the Beatitudes, when Jesus gets to this part of the message, the people who are listening to him are shocked, maybe even appalled. Because the people he's talking about are the most religious, the most devout people in the whole culture. He's saying, if you're not more righteous than them, you might as well give up hope now. You're a goner. Like, what? What is he talking about? Well, 
here's what, uh, here's what we, we, we think he's talking about. Oh, we have the benefit of hindsight. For these people, for these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, righteousness is something that you do. As Jesus is going to define it, righteousness is something that you are. Righteousness is meant to be something that we are. Salt does not try to flavor or preserve. It simply does these things because of what it is. The light does not try to illuminate. Light simply is, and wherever it is, darkness is dispelled. The whole unbroken world, before it was fallen, the whole unbroken world is a righteous world. And if we're going to come to an understanding of what goodness is, of what righteousness is, we need to understand the wholeness and unbroken, unbrokenness of a righteous world. Because the Messiah's mission is to restore righteousness. And not just ours, but the righteousness of everything. The righteousness of the city, the righteousness of the kingdom, the righteousness of the people, the righteousness of all of creation. To restore it all, to make all things new. Remember when we were in those prophets, the prophet Zechariah tells us about this vision he has of a scroll flying around the city of Jerusalem. And it's casting out all the wickedness. It's casting down the sinners. That's about righteousness. It's about purification. He has another vision of a woman that an angel tells him represents the wickedness of the people. And two other women with wings take her up in a basket and carry her off to Babylon, purging the holy city of this unholiness, of this wickedness. And we're read in Malachi about the refining fire, that the Messiah will come as a refining fire. And it won't just light up the city, it will purify the remnant of the people, like silver being refined by fire. The city, the kingdom, the people, they will all be made righteous. And the prophet Jeremiah says, I will write my law on their minds, on their hearts. They will be made righteous. Then Jesus says in, in verse 17, he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tr truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So here's what we can agree to. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. This creates uh, some serious confusion for a lot of us as, as believers because we understand that we are not under the law. And how are we not under the law if Jesus didn't come to abolish the law? It's a confusing study. It's a complex issue, and we're not going to unpack it all here today. I'm not even going to try. But it's also confusing because during his ministry, Jesus challenges a lot of the traditions and a lot of the interpretations of the law that were common at his time. And so it seems like, in a sense, he's 
abolishing the law, but he's really not. We know he's not because he says he's not. It's generally acknowledged that there is within all of the books that contain these, these words of law, there are really three different laws. There is a moral law, in other words, things that are universally and eternally right or wrong. There is a civil law, those laws set up to guide Israel as a nation. And there is a ceremonial law, which mostly has to do with temple worship and, and how things will be done in terms of worshiping God. Some aspects of this, we know during Jesus' ministry, at the, especially at the end of Jesus' ministry, are seriously transformed. Temple worship and sacrifice, for instance, Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice. So that whole process of temple sacrifice and everything that goes with it sort of becomes void. And the prophets even said that that would happen. They said that those sacrifices would come to an end in this era. And so there's this confusion. It raises these questions. What law does Jesus speak of? What, what parts of the law uh, apply to us? Well, here's the stuff that we're going to try to unpack briefly here this morning. First of all, can we just do away with the idea that when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, that that somehow means that he intends to abolish the law? We've often interpreted it this way. Jesus said, I've, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And then we end up sort of doing a little bit of theological gymnastics and come to the conclusion that when Jesus says he meant to fulfill the law, that actually means the law comes to an end or he abolishes the law. So if Jesus, what Jesus is actually saying is, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to abolish the law. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to complete it. I came to show you what it's all about. I came to take it to its um, absolute and logical conclusions. As to how, what parts of the law apply to us, uh, for now, can we just let the words of Jesus in this context guide us? What is it that he gives us commentary on? He's just said that he didn't come to abolish the law. Then what does he say about the law? What laws does he reference? We know that because of grace, because of the grace that we have through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not judged by the law. We are not condemned by the law. We are not, as Paul says, we are not under the law. But we still stand on the law. The law remains our foundation. The law stands as a testament to righteousness. It's a description. It's a snapshot, if you will. A snapshot of perfection. But remember, in our attempts to understand perfection, we're doing a bit of reverse engineering. We're taking the broken pieces of a perfect creation and our own imperfect understanding and trying to put the puzzle back together. Like archaeologists sort of digging up a few remnants of a civilization and then by conjecture trying to understand how that entire civilization worked. This is what we're doing when we try to understand the whole and righteous world. So how can the unrighteous explain righteousness? 
Well, the law is sort of the first attempt at that. The law describes righteousness for God's people. And what does Jesus tell us about the law and its relationship with righteousness? Well, first of all, he says true righteousness eludes the law keepers, the Pharisees and the, and the, and the lawyers. And there's an inherent problem here. If righteousness is about being, it's about what we are, and keeping the law is about doing what we do, we can do all the right things without necessarily being the right thing. Now that's confusing. So here's the best thing I could come up with to help us understand this. I'll have to explain to some of you what cosplayers are. So all the young people will know. Cosplayers is, is short for costume players. So cosplayers are people that go to conventions and mock battles and all these other things, and they dress up as the characters that they want to be. So I have a friend that's deeply into this, and sometimes he'll send pictures on his Facebook account. Sometimes he and all of his buddies are pirates. And sometimes they're all dressed up for a Western saloon. And sometimes they're Star Wars characters. They build these elaborate costumes, and they go to these events, and while they're at the event, they not only wear the costume, but they take on all the mannerisms, and they try to be that character for the day. It's fun, I guess. I'm not, not done. It sounds fun. But here's the thing. Even though in our culture we have sort of come to this place where we think that if you believe you are something, you really are, regardless of the reality, most cosplayers recognize that simply because I'm wearing a hook on my hand doesn't mean I'm a pirate. If I'm wearing fairy wings, doesn't mean I can fly. If I'm wearing a pointy hat, doesn't mean I'm a wizard. If I'm dressed up as Captain America, I don't have superhuman strength. We are not what we appear to be. This is the dynamic that Jesus says afflicts the Pharisees and the keepers of the law. They are putting on a show. They are putting on the law. They are putting on righteousness, but underneath there's something different. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They're clean and beautiful on the outside. Inside, there's nothing there but death. This is the difference between following all the rules to look righteous and actually being righteous. Being righteous is such a, a, a higher standard. Jesus then says in uh, verse 21, goes on to begin describing his interpretation of the law. He says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is an insult that means empty-headed, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What is he saying? He's saying that true righteousness addresses sin at its source. See, most of us 
are going to make it through life without murdering anyone. We can say that with a high degree of confidence. There may be people in our life that we've thought about throttling. Frankly, my son is lucky to be alive. But most of us will not reach the point where we actually choke the life out of anyone. But can any of us say that we haven't nurtured a grudge? Can any of us say that, that, that we haven't allowed hate and anger to fester within us, to stay so much longer than it needed to be there? That we've allowed some small injustice to grow into some major conflict that we refuse to let go of? Most of us, most of us can keep these elements of the law in the bigger stroke. But when we get down to the meaning of it, when we get down to what it's about, what Jesus tells us about, it's another thing altogether. And he illustrates this further. He talks about adultery. He says, you know, you shouldn't commit adultery. But you know what? Looking on another with lust, that's enough to make you unrighteous. He talks about divorce. That the law allowed for divorce. The law had a structure for divorce in which you had to issue a sort of a writ of divorce. This was actually designed to protect the woman who's being cast out, give her some legal status. Designed to protect her, doesn't protect the person who callously divorces his wife from his own unrighteousness, Jesus says. He talks about keeping oaths. You, you, you swear an oath, you should keep it. We all know that, right? He says, but the very fact that you have to swear an oath means that your regular word doesn't mean anything. That's an indication that you're already struggling with an unrighteousness problem. Because your yes doesn't mean yes, and your no doesn't mean no. And so you have to try to strengthen these things by swearing an oath to go with it. All of his explanations illustrate how keeping the law is different than actually being righteous. Jesus still goes further. He says, you've been told to exchange an eye for an eye. In other words, whatever, whatever hardship, whatever evil has been inflicted upon you, you have the legal right to inflict that back on the person who did it to you. That's an eye for an eye. He says, don't. Don't. You really want to be righteous, then you will return good for whatever evil is done to you. And then he gets into what is easily the most revolutionary, controversial message of his entire ministry. In verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies. No, Nobody says this. Nobody teaches this until Jesus. I had a woman in church one time 
preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, we got to this part. I said, nope. That's a bridge too far. Loving my enemies. Nope. Well, at least you're on it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is what Jesus says. He says, the kingdom will be defined by unimaginable love. Want to know why it's so difficult for us to explain what the kingdom is? Want to know why it's so difficult for us to explain what real righteousness looks like? Because the kind of love we're talking about is a love that is beyond our imagination. It is beyond our experience, except in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom will be defined by this unimaginable love. We cannot cosplay it. We have to become it. And Jesus says why we must do this. He says we must do it so that we'll be children of our Father. So that we'll be the image bearers. Because this is who God is. God is love. And God is righteousness. And we have to become these things so that we will be the image bearers of the Father again. We will restore the purpose for which we were created. We were created by a righteous and loving God to be righteous and loving people and to live in a righteous and loving world. And until we embrace that idea, as foreign as it is to us, we will never even begin to understand what the kingdom is all about. Jesus points out that we give ourselves credit for loving the people who love us back. And he says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Understand that the kingdom of heaven is an invasion of God's redemptive righteousness. And the aim of that is not merely to forgive your past, but to transform your future. To make us all, make us all part of a new creation. To make us all right, righteous, and good again. Not only in our outward appearance, but in our truth, in our character, to make us righteous. And then he says, in verse 48, believe it or not, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, I wish he hadn't gone there. I wish he hadn't gone there because we take great comfort in reminding ourselves that nobody's perfect. It gets us off the hook. That's our whole understanding of grace is wrapped up in the idea that nobody's perfect. So, so in order to receive grace, I just need to be a little bit better than somebody else. And that's a really broken idea of grace. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The aim of the Messiah is to be a purifying fire 
to build a kingdom that is a kingdom of perfect righteousness. In other words, congregation, and this is not the whole message, so, so if you find this discouraging in any way, hold on. Hold on tight. But Christ presents his disciples with an absolutely impossible standard. Where the law had failed Israel, moralism is failing Christians today. There is no way that you're going to be good enough, no matter how much better you are than the other people you know. It's just not going to happen. And so you might be asking, how on earth then, if, if, if Christ presents his disciples with an impossible standard of righteousness, a standard which we have already not met, much like, and, and, and are highly unlikely to ever meet. How is that good news? How is that the gospel? Well, it is good news in at least two things. Number one is that the kingdom of heaven is not going to be some tweaked, improved-on version of this broken and fallen world that we know now. It is going to be perfect. Perfect love and perfect righteousness. That is worth celebrating. But we still have this problem that we've been called now to be perfect so that we can fit in to this perfect kingdom and this perfect love and this perfect righteousness. And what do we do with that impossibility? Well, here's the other bit of good news. You can't. That's, that's the point. That's the point that this righteousness to which we are called to aspire, this righteousness that is so perfect, is a work we will not be able to do. And that's good news. Because it means that what Jesus is setting out to do, this newness that he's looking to create, this world that he's going to renew, this kingdom that he's going to initiate, that is a perfect kingdom full of perfect love and perfect righteousness and perfectly refined people, is his work and not ours. He will make us righteous so that we can be a part of his perfect righteousness.